I've mentioned this book to you several times. Some of you guys that have been around for a few years, you've heard me mention the book, The Screwtape Letters. It's a wonderful satire uh, written by C.S. Lewis, uh, built around Christian apologetics. I commend it to you. If you have not read it, it's a, it's a great little book. The book is comprised of letters of advice written by the senior demon, and uh, his name is, is Screwtape, to his uh, mentor demon, whose name is Wormwood. And uh, Uncle Screwtape and his nephew, Wormwood. And Wormwood has been assigned to a human being, as the demons refer to us in the novel, as patience. And it's the demon's job to keep the patient from, guess what? Coming to the enemy. Who's the enemy? Jesus Christ. Okay? So that's the job of Wormwood, to keep his patient or his human being from coming to Christ. And so there's, uh, there's trouble. There's trouble brewing um, in chapter 2, actually. Wormwood's patient has made a profession of faith in Christ. And this is what Screwtape writes to Wormwood. I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. There is no need to despair, however. Many of these so-called converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp. And they are now with us. I want to clarify Lewis's comments. He's not talking about someone who was genuinely saved and lost his salvation. We understand uh, from the Bible, but that, that, that's not what the Bible teaches. You cannot lose your salvation. We get that. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about here is someone who's simply made a profession of faith. Kind of like we talked about last week. People who simply say they're Christians, but they don't actually live like they're Christians. That's what C.S. Lewis is talking about. Cultural Christians. Nominal Christians. Unregenerate. Christians, Christians who are not born again, Christians who do not have the Spirit of God living within them. That's what Lewis is referring to here. This is a, a documented epidemic in the States. I, I think I've shared this with you not too long ago. George Barna is a pollster and researcher uh, in the States about Christian trends and things. I think he's written several books. And he did a poll of the lifestyles of professed Christians as juxtaposed to non-Christians using a 131 different measures of attitudes, beliefs, values, and behaviors. He found no difference. Can you believe it? Well, if you've been to the States, you can believe it. He found no difference between those who say they're a Christian and those who, 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 who are not a Christian. That's what Lewis is talking about. That's what he's talking about. You know, when you see a statistic like that, you can almost hear... Satan laughing. He's the father of pseudo-Christianity. He's the one that comes up with all these goofy, uh, false gospels. All these merely religious, false gospels. That's what he does. He is the father of apostate Christianity. So listen to Screwtape's counsel to Wormwood in chapter 9. I love this. This is brilliant. Listen to this, listen to this uh, insight by C.S. Lewis. Screwtape says, Talk to your patient about moderation in all things. If you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. I love this line. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all. And it's more amusing. Okay? <laughs> this is a... Again, this is C.S. Lewis's novel. This is a demon speaking. 
they love moderated religion. They love quasi, or, or let me say it this way, they love pseudo-Christianity. Because their patient thinks they're on their way to heaven. And they're not! And as we study our New Testament, we discover that there's much deception. There's much deception even in the first century all the way down to the 21st century. I looked up the word moderate. I thought it would inform us here. It's talking about a modest Christianity. I don't see that. I don't, I don't see that on the pages of the New Testament. It's talking about a restrained Christianity. I don't see that on the pages of the New Testament. It's talking about an ordinary or diminished or mediocre Christianity. Beloved, I don't see this on the pages of Scripture. I've said to you many times, most of what passes for Christianity today is biblically unrecognizable. It's simply biblically unrecognizable. It's the moderated version that we see in many places today. It's comprised of little more than I give mental assent to the historical facts about Jesus Christ. It's a little bit of church attendance if it doesn't conflict with anything better. If I don't have anything better to do, I will attend church. It's maybe throw a euro or two in the offering plate. It's the spare change mentality. It's not I, I, I happily bring a worthy offering to God. It's like, well, if I think about it, I'll throw something in. It's that kind of mentality. Maybe I'll serve the church in some way as long as it doesn't take up too much of my time. It's avoiding the really bad sins. No killing. No adultery. No stealing. And maybe I'll speak Jesus. Maybe I'll speak His name out in the world as long as it doesn't make me or anyone else too uncomfortable. That's just a brief summary of what I, I think I see as a moderated Christianity. But you know what? When I open this and I read this, that's not what I see. I don't see mental ascent Christianity. I see hearts on fire. I see hearts on fire for Jesus Christ. I don't see obligatory church attendance. I see lifestyles of being poured out for Christ. A pa passionate worship in and through obedience. That's what you see on the pages of Scripture. I don't read about spare change giving in the New Testament. I read about sacrificial giving. and You can't stop me from bringing a worthy offering to this great God. That's what I see on the pages of Scripture. I don't read about uh, convenient service to the church. I read about being poured out using my gift in the body. I don't merely read about avoiding the really bad sins. I read about people seriously pursuing holiness. And I don't read about sheepishly speaking about Jesus Christ, but boldly proclaiming Him in word and in deed. Moderated Christianity is no Christianity at all. It uses the name of Jesus, but it does not seek to be the disciple of Jesus. We've been talking about this since February. This is the, the you know, discipleship is salvation. Salvation is discipleship. There's no dichotomy in the New Testament. But your moderated Christianity of the day, it ventures nothing, foregoes nothing, risks, risks nothing, and sacrifices nothing. Last week we talked a little bit about um, Jesus, how Jesus equates salvation to a changed life. How Jesus says it will be conspicuous. We've been talking about this for months now. So it seemed good to me to maybe take a look at what Jesus is saying to us here in Matthew 13. 
Last week again, Jesus told us that we are to enter by the narrow gate. Actually, we looked at that passage in Luke 13 where Jesus says, Strive to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Strive, He says. And I ask you the question, are you striving? Are you vigorous in your Christianity? And are you striving to make much of Jesus in your family, in your work, in your school, in your church, obviously? Are you striving to do that? Remember last week, Jesus said, you know, my people, they bear good fruit. It's conspicuous. It's obvious. Remember, Jesus said, the knowing thing is going on. Remember what He told the the false disciples? He said, I don't know who you are. So we understand that in biblical Christianity, the, the relationship is going on. We're not trusting in our religion as those guys were last week. We're not trusting in that. We don't show up with our religious resumes. We are in relationship with Christ. And lastly, Jesus said last week that we build upon His words. We act. We are like a wise man who builds on a rock. We don't build on sand. So, we talked a lot about that last week. One of the most frequently asked questions I get as a pastor relates to this issue. And that is, someone will say to me, well, I have this friend or I have this family member. They professed Christ when they were 10. But there's no fruit. They have no interest in the things of God. They have no interest in the Word of God. They have no interest in the body of Christ. And they they live pretty much like the world. In fact, you can't tell the difference between them and the world. Are they real? That's a real easy question to answer, beloved. It's a real easy question to answer if we simply go to the Gospel according to Jesus. You know, I have people, and I'll say to even people who ask me, they'll, they'll describe their own situation, and sometimes I'll say to them, you have every reason to question your profession of faith based on what you're saying and how you're living. You have every reason to question whether it's genuine, whether it's real, based on how you're living, based on how you're speaking. Sometimes I have to say this to people. Maybe you use this too. I think it's important as mature Christians sometimes to be able to counsel and, and, and counsel straightforward in a very straightforward way. Jesus says, my people are different. They just are. We're not perfect, but we're different. We bear spiritual fruit. So this is a huge question for us individually. Because some of you in here, I don't know all of you. I don't know your past. But if you're trusting in what you did when you were eight, that's no good. It's not what you did when you were eight. How are you living now? That's what Jesus is saying to us. That's what Jesus would say to you. What does your life look like? What does your life look like? So, Matthew 13. You heard the text read. Verses 1 and 2, Jesus is sitting in a boat and there's a great multitude gathered on the shore. Verse 3, He begins to speak many things to them in parables. These are simple stories as analogies that contain deep spiritual truth. He starts with something they can understand and He moves into something they don't understand. He starts with something they see and He moves into something they cannot see. He starts with the natural and He's speaking about the supernatural. 
Verses 4-8, through eight, Jesus recounts the parable of the sower. Some people call it the parable of the soils. This, gospel, uh, pardon me, this parable is included in, in three of the Gospels. So this obviously is something the Lord wants us to understand. Verse 9, Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 10, the disciples ask Jesus why He's teaching in parables. Verse 11, Jesus says, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Now, this is a rather startling statement. If, you're, if you don't know your Bible well, this might be a startling statement to you if you've never heard this before. Most people say, well, Jesus taught in parables to make the truth more clear. Actually, if we read the words of Jesus, it's not about re revealing truth, it's about concealing truth. Have you ever heard that before? I hope, you've been, I hope you know your Bibles. Why is Jesus concealing truth? Well, if we go back and we look at the previous chapter, we understand that the Pharisees have, have gotten to the end of their rope. I mean, they have, con they, they have accused Jesus of casting out demons using the power of Satan. It's as if Israel, in the religious leaders, has ultimately rejected Christ. And it seems to be a turning point. He begins to teach in parables after this point. The way he teaches publicly after this point is in parables. It's important to understand that. It's important that we understand that. Why? Judgment. Why does Jesus say something like, it's been granted to you, but it's not granted to them. Why would, why would uh, incarnate God say something like that? Simply, it's judgment. It's judgment on those who are willfully rebelling against the Word of God. It's judgment. So I want to talk about that just for a minute so we understand. God exercises His divine prerogative to judge sinners. John chapter 3 tells us that men hate what? They hate the light. They hate the light. And they love the darkness. So God in His righteous, omniscient, all-wise, perfect judgment, He simply gives men over to the darkness that they love. That's part, in part what is happening at this point in the life and ministry of Jesus. We've seen it in Scripture. Um, we saw it in, in, uh, in, in the Exodus when God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. You know, many Bible readers, they come to me, they have a hard time with this. Why is God hardening the heart of Pharaoh? Beloved, it's His prerogative to judge. This is part of judgment. You can't reject God with impunity. There will, be, there will come a time when judgment will begin to fall. And the first part of judgment many times is simply a hard heart. It's God's prerogative to harden His rebellious creatures' hearts. It's part of His judicial prerogative. We saw Him do that in, in the Exodus. If we read Romans chapter 1, we see the Holy Spirit says, Romans 1.24, God gave men over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Romans 1.26, God gave them over to their degrading passions. Romans 1.28, He gave them over to the depraved minds. This is God's prerogative. Judgment. Judicial judgment. Judicial judgment. Listen to how strongly the Holy Spirit says it over in in John chapter 12, John writes, But though Jesus Christ had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing. 
Beloved, you can't play with God. You can't trifle with God. You can't hold Him at arm's length and say, I'll come to Him when I get ready. You can't play like that with God. You can't trifle with God. You know, and He's presented in such a pathetic way in so many places these days that people think He's a chump. God's a chump. I'll just come to Him. You know, I'm going to do what I want to do. And if I you know, get to the place where I think I need Him, then I'll come to Him. Beloved, that's a dangerous game to play if we actually read and understand our Bibles because judgment is falling on Israel. He says it's been granted to you, but not to them at this point. He moves his uh, emphasis to individuals, away from corporate Israel to individuals at this point. Judgment is falling at this point. John goes on. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. What? They could not believe. Why? Judgment is falling. That's why. Beloved, this is not often taught. I don't know that I've, I've heard it once or twice. This is what God says. You can't, there's always urgency when the gospel is preached. Today, if you hear the word of the Lord, repent. Your heart might be too hard tomorrow, beloved. This is just a biblical truth. This is a biblical truth. This is God's word. I'm not making this up. You can read it. You can read it off the page for yourself. He says. John continues, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Beloved, the God of the Bible is not a chump. You can't play him for a fool. He's God. And you know what? Sometimes we better remember that every man that ever saw God, every man that ever caught a vision of God in the Bible, boom, he hit his face as fast as he could. He's an awesome, fearsome God. And I think we oftentimes treat him as if he's some kind of chump and we can just presume on grace, presume on his long suffering. I presume on his mercy. If we read our Bibles, we understand that's not an option. That is not an option. So Jesus begins to veil the gospel as he exercises his divine prerogative to judge those who are rejecting him. But look what he says to the disciples. Verses 16 and 17. You've got to love this. And if you're a disciple, you've got to love this. But blessed are you, he says. Blessed are your eyes and your ears because you see and you hear. For many prophets and righteous men desired to see, but they did not see and hear. But you have. Blessed are you, beloved. That's what I say to you if you're a disciple tonight. Blessed are you. If you're not a disciple, repent and believe. If you are a disciple, blessed are you. What an awesome time to be a disciple, beloved. It's an awesome time to be a disciple. The cross is history. We've seen it. The manger is history. We saw God in the manger. We saw God on the cross. We saw God come out of the tomb via the Word of God. We've got the historical accounts. The Holy Spirit is indwelling us. The first and second member of the Trinity is interceding for us. We have all that we need to be awesome Christians. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you, beloved. I pray that 
we're not taking this for granted. I pray that we are appropriating this power. Shame on us if we're not good stewards of all that God has given to us. We should all be radical Christians. We have all that we need. We have all that we need from God. Blessed are you among men. So let me just ask you, I'll just stop and ask you. Are you appropriating this power? Are you using this power? Are you making much of Jesus in the world? Are you making Him famous out in the world? Mark 4.10 tells us the disciples came to Jesus and said, explain this parable to us. So in verse 18 of Matthew 13, he begins to explain. First, let me tell you, you already know this, the, the seed is the Word of God, and the sower is anyone who throws the seed. It's, Jesus is, the, is our prototype here. He's sowing good seed. If you're sowing good seed in the world, you're a sower too. This is, this is how Karen and I do ministry. This is how ICM functions. I don't convert anyone. I can't convert anyone. I don't try to convert anyone. But what I do try to do with integrity is sow good seed. I sow good seed, and the Holy Spirit does what He does. The Holy Spirit does the heart transplant. I can't do the heart transplant in you. The Holy Spirit can. I can sow good seed, and He does the rest. Beloved, this, this takes all the heat off. You know, I hear many people, they wring their hands and they say, oh, I'm not a good, I, can't, I can't witness, I'm not good at it, I get nervous, I'm say, I say the wrong thing. And Listen, forget all that. That's all garbage. It's not about you. How many times do I have to tell you that? It's not about you. Sow good seed. God does everything else. Man, if I thought it was up to me, I would not be in the pastorate. I would still be an accountant, counting beans. That's what I'd be doing. A bean counter. That's what we're called in the States. I wouldn't be a pastor because I wouldn't know. It's not, I don't have the ability to do that. So listen, I'm trying to free you up with your evangelism. It's not about you. Sow good seed. And trust God. Just sow good seed. You don't have to be slick. You don't have to be cool. You don't have to be trendy. Sow good seed. God does what God does. First Peter 1.23 says it perfectly. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. I love how Paul talks about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Listen to this. One sows, one plants, one waters, but who causes the growth? Who does it? Who does all the heavy lifting? God. So you're all freed up. So just go out there and sow seed. You know, if you don't know anything else to say, just give them a scripture. That's probably, maybe, the most powerful thing you can do. Just give them a scripture. Okay. Let's, uh, let's look here at... Well, the second thing I want to say to you, uh, the soils, of course, this, this is the human heart. It's the, and it's the responses of the human heart to the gospel. So the best way, I think, to teach this is I will read the applicable verse in verses 3 through 8, and then we'll go down to verses 19 uh, through 23 and read how Jesus explains it. So that's how we're going to do this. So verses 3 and 4, first, the first soil. Behold, the sower went out to sow, and he sowed uh, some of the seed, and it fell behind, beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Jesus explains this in verse 19. So let me read verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed 
was sown by the road. This is the hard heart. This is the indifferent heart. This is the man or woman who never thinks about ultimate questions. They don't think about where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? You know, you meet people like this all the time. You just think, man, wake up. You know, it's just people are just living their lives and they're just, you know, following the, the lust of their flesh and just seeking the things that you, you just go, come on. Have you ever asked a serious question in your life? Where'd you come from? Why do you think you're here? Where are you going? They just don't deal with it. They just don't deal with it. I mean, this is an indifferent heart. It possibly could be someone who is hostile to the Gospel. Someone who is clueless about spiritual things. I thought it was interesting over in the Luke account of this um, parable, Jesus says this seed is trampled underfoot. I thought that was an excellent metaphor. A heart so trampled down with the traffic of self-absorption and vanity and ego and pride that they have no concern for God. No concern for God. I know you meet people like this. I know you meet people like this. Made me think of Romans 8, verse 5, talking about the mind set on the things of the flesh. Then Paul writes, Romans 8, 6 through 8, he says, For the mind set on the flesh, it's death. Because the mind set on the flesh, it's hostile to God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it's not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So that's the first soil. The second soil, verses 5 and 6. And other seed fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Jesus explains this in verses 20 to 21. Let me read it for you. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. This is the soil that looks good. This is what C.S. Lewis was talking about in the screw tape letters. This guy, this guy looks good. Man, he received the Word with joy. And immediately, there's kind of a, a foliage in his life. There's a foliage in his life. It looks good. It looks, it looks real. You know, every other disciple thought Judas was real. Everybody thought Judas was real. They knew Judas was real. But he wasn't, was he? He'd never really given himself away to Jesus. He always had agenda. He always had his own agenda. He never really gave himself away. He wanted Jesus on his terms. I want a political deliverer. That's really what I think Judas wanted. Everyone would have said Judas was real, but he wasn't. And this guy looks real. He looks real. But when the affliction and persecution came, he just quits. He just caves. He just folds. I've seen this many times. I've been doing this for 30 years, both lay and vocational ministry. I've seen it. You can't believe these guys. They just walk away. They just walk away. It's an astonishing thing. And I, I told you last week that I come from a 
a denomination that, that really specializes in making church members. We don't make a lot of disciples, but oh, in, in the history of this denomination, we've made many, many church members. And it's because we, we, we don't really, we have not really understood the supernatural nature of conversion, and we have this really terrible methodology. You know, if someone shows the slightest interest in Christ, boom, what? Pray this prayer. You're a Christian. Isn't that how we do it? That's how some of us do it. Some of, some of us have been taught to do it this way. Beloved, don't ever do that. Don't ever tell anyone they're a Christian. That's not your job. Your, whose job is that? That's the Holy Spirit's job. Now, you can comfort someone. You can go through the Scriptures with them. You can pray with them. You can assure them. But don't ever try to say, I know you're a Christian. That, you, you, you can't, one, you can't know that. And two, that's not your job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We're talking about the Gospel according to Jesus. Not the Gospel according to the Baptists or the Presbyterians or the Anglicans or the Catholics or the Charismatics or the Pentecostals or whatever. We're talking about the Gospel according to Jesus. I'm not talking about how men have dumbed it down. I'm talking about the Gospel according to Jesus. And you can read it on the page for yourself. So affliction and persecution. It gets hard. He came to Christ on superficial grounds and when it got hard, He left Him. He left Him. You know, there are many people who would love the benefits of professing Jesus. But not if it's going to cost me anything, right? I want this cheap grace. I want this free grace. Yeah, I want to check my box and make sure I don't go to hell. If hell exists, I want to make sure I don't go there. So I'm going to, yeah, I'll do the thing. I'll say the thing. I'll pray the thing. I'll get in the water. I'll do that. Just in case all this stuff is real. But I, if it costs me anything, forget about it. Right? This is this guy. This is the rocky soil. This is the rocky soil. The Christian is different. We talked about it many times. We saw it in 1 John when we reviewed 1 John. We are, anybody remember? When it gets hard, we don't fold. When it gets hard, what? We overcome. We are Nike. We're Nike. We overcome through our faith, as the text says. And I could give you many, many verses. We don't have time. Paul said it really well in 2 Corinthians 4.17. These momentary light afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. The third soil. Verse 7. Others, other uh, seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Verse 22, Jesus explains this. Verse 22, Jesus says, and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. This is the worldly heart. This is the worldly heart. It's got weeds. And we all got some weeds, right? We all have things we're dealing with. None of us are perfect. We all have sins we, we deal with, abiding sins that we deal with. This is talking about something more than that. The soil is unclean. It's full, of, it's full of weeds. The first weed is the weed of worry. Beloved, Jesus says, if you're a Christian, you're not supposed to worry. How many of you have been worrying? Our great God and King says, don't worry. 
don't worry. That's what he says. You know, again, this is something I've seen many times in my 30 years of doing this. People, they profess to be Christians, but they worry about everything. I mean everything. Every imaginable thing, they're worried about it. Beloved, this betrays our our confession to be sons and daughters of, of God if we're going to worry about everything. They just seem to worry about everything. This person may be a church member, but he could never be a real Christian. He could never be a disciple. He's too worried. He could never risk anything for God. He's too worried. He could never step out of the boat. He's too worried. Beloved, I just want to challenge you. Get rid of that worry in your mind. It doesn't honor God. He's commanded us not to worry. He says, be anxious for nothing. Worry about nothing. It's like when we worry, when we, when we insist on worrying, it's like we're saying, I don't really believe He's big enough to take care of this. Uh, yeah, He's God, but He's not a big enough God. That's really what we're saying by our actions. He's God, but He's not a big enough God to, to handle this situation in my life. Beloved, let us not, let us not function like that. The second weed here is the deceitfulness of riches. This is another thing I've seen in my years of ministry. People who confess to be Christians, but they really love their money more. They love their stuff more. They love their worldly dreams more than Jesus. I know you've probably seen this as well. Their ultimate trust is not in Christ, it's in their pile of money. Their ultimate trust, or pardon me, their ultimate treasure is not in Christ. It's in their stuff. It's in their portfolio. You guys know this, I think. It's a pretty famous statistic. You know, if you make 10,000 US dollars a year, that's 8,000 euros. You make more than 85% of the world. I understand about cost of living. I understand that. There's different costs of living. I get that. If you make 37,000 US dollars a year or 30,000 euros a year, that's more than 95% of the world. Beloved, how do you fight how do you fight the deceitfulness of riches? You give it away. <laughs> you give, you learn to give. This is how you fight that. If you struggle with that, the way to fight, you know, having your treasure and your trust and your money is become a systematic giver. So bountifully, as the Word of God says. Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. And it's hard because in the West, I know many of you are young and, and you struggle, but by and large in the West, we're, we're rich. We're rich. So this is a very, a very real and present danger for us. Lastly, the fourth seed. Others, verse 8, others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. Jesus explains this in verse 23. He says, And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil is the man who hears the Word. He understands the Word. And what does he do? Someone tell me. What does this man or woman do? He hears, he understands, and he what? He bears fruit. That's what we talked about last week. A good tree will bear good fruit. 
and it brings forth a hundredfold, sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. Some of you may know that in Palestine in the first century, a seven to tenfold harvest was awesome. Jesus is saying a hundred. It's blowing their minds. Sixty or thirty. Which means the, the born-again believer has much fruit. Different levels. But Christians are to have fruit in their life. Spiritual fruit in their life. It's the good soil. It's soft. It's deep. And it's clean. It understands the Word. And it acts on the Word. So what is spiritual fruit? People ask me all the time, what is spiritual fruit? And uh, it, it can be defined in a lot of different ways. But let me just... Let me just say it this way, as a, as a general statement. It's anything that looks like Christ in your life. It's anything that you do out of love for Him. Anything you do out of obedience to His Word, that's a fruit. There's a whole lot of things we can say, and I'll give you a list of examples. But ultimately, it's something you're doing because you love Him. And it's something you're doing because He's your Lord. You love Him as your Redeemer. And you submit to Him as Lord. It's anything flowing out of your life based on those motivations. It's a deep and abiding love for Christ. It's a hatred of your own sin. It's a love for the Word of God. It's a spirit of humility and repentance before Christ. It's a hunger for righteousness. It's a, uh, the presence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Galatians chapter 5. It's heartfelt worship of Jesus. It's obedience to Jesus. It's living by faith in Jesus. It's using your gifts to love and serve the body of Christ. It's honoring Him in uh, the first of your produce. It's living the Gospel before and communicating the Gospel to the lost. Those are just some examples. That is spiritual fruit, beloved. That is spiritual fruit. Jesus is clear why all true believers don't bear fruit equally. They do bear spiritual fruit. It's the hallmark of true conversion according to Jesus Christ. Last week we talked about Judas as the, as the false branch. And I referred briefly to John 15. It just seems good tonight to turn over there. I'm going to close with John 15. You guys know the famous text where um, Jesus is talking about the vine and the branch and the fruit. And, and I'm just going to close with Matthew, pardon me, John 15. I think I'm going to read the first 11 verses. John 15, 1-11. Again, the words of Jesus as we understand what biblical conversion looks like. John 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine and My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in Me that does not bear fruit He takes away. The Judas branch. The one who says, but He never has a changed heart. He never builds on the rock. He never has any fruit springing up from the good soil. This is what Jesus is saying. Every branch in Me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. The Father takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. Isn't that good news? God's going to prune you so you can bear more. You say, I don't like the pruning. It's good for you. <laughs> it's good for you. God's always doing a good thing. 
He prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Verse 3, You are already clean because of the Word which I have spoken to you. Verse 4, Abide in Me. Here it is. Abide in Me. True believers abide in Christ. And I will abide in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in Me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in Me and I in Him, He bears much fruit. For apart from Me you can do nothing. Do you see how important this is? The vine and the fruit, verse 6. If anyone does not abide in Me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned, verse 7. And if you abide in Me, My Word abides in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. Verse 8. By this, my Father, uh, by this is My Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so prove to be My disciples. Beloved, we're left here to glorify the Father as we make much of Jesus and bear fruit in the world. Verse 9, Just as the Father has loved Me, I have also loved you. Abide in My love. If you kept My commandments, if you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. Listen to this. I love verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. Why, why did Jesus say these things to us? He's spoken these things to us so that we'd be good little religious boys and girls, right? And we could check our box, all of our religious boxes. That's why He's given us all this authority and power. Why does He say it? He says, these things I've spoken to you, why? Why do, I want you to, why, why do I want you to abide in Me? Why do I want you to bear much fruit? Why do I want you to go out there and build on the rock? Why do I want you to live like a disciple? Why? What does God say? That my joy will be in you. You say, Jim, I have a joyless Christianity. No! That's an oxymoron. You've left off following Christ somewhere if you have a joyless Christianity. Jesus said, abide in me, do what I say, and my joy will be in you. How big is the joy of God? It's infinite. I'm not saying we don't struggle and we get dull at times. We're, we are human beings. We're in the flesh. But beloved, I know how to correct that. God tells us how to correct that. Humble ourselves before the Lord and obey the Lord. And just It doesn't have to be a big thing. Obey the Lord in the small thing. You know, just in the grubby thing. <laughs> you know, in the mean thing. The, you know, the, the, the average, normal, everyday thing. Obey the Lord. And you will feel the pleasure of God. This is, how, this, is the, this is how we feel the pleasure of God in our life. As we, as we do this. As we abide and as we bear fruit. So that's my challenge to you. I think we'll have one more sermon on uh, the Gospel according to Jesus. You know, Jesus says some things that are uh, pretty hard things. And... Uh, but I think it's important that we understand them, that, that we can talk about them. I think it's very important that we can use them to witness. I think the Lord has given us these powerful uh, parables and these powerful words that we could use to witness in this very weak time in the modern church. Some of you are going to go away. You're going to go, uh, you're going to go back home to a, uh, to a church maybe that might be weak, that doesn't preach the Word strongly. You know, you need to be in that body. If you can't find a place to, to you know, a strong church, and you find yourself in this body, you can be a light in that body. This is the Gospel according to Jesus. This is what Jesus says. You know, just keep bringing people back to the truth. I love this text. 
These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Abide in the Lord. Do the Word for the glory of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for the text. Thank You for this parable. We thank You that You have explained it to us. Thank You, Father. We understand that there's much deception in the spiritual realm. But You have made it clear to us. If we will take the time to read Your Word and understand it, You have made it clear to us what true Christianity looks like. Lord, I pray that we could come to a place that each of us in here would not only know this, but be able to explain it to help our friends and colleagues and neighbors and family members who are merely playing with religion. So Lord, I pray that we could come to understand these weighty truths that, that, that You're exposing us to here in the last few weeks and even next week. Teach us, Lord, that we might be mighty in the Scripture. That we might rightly divide the Word. Lord, that we can be light in the world for the salvation of the lost. Thank You, Father. Thank You for Your faithfulness as always. Thank You for Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.